morning, everyone. Pastor's message this morning is entitled, Living Prepped for Heaven, and the scripture reference is Romans chapter 13, 11 through 14. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we humble ourselves before you and pray that we would receive the word with readiness, Lord, and that it would be implanted, Lord, within us so that we would not just be hearers of it, but doers of it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a renewed urgency about the sort of lives we live in light of the blessed hope, the appearing of our glorious Savior, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be with us, we pray. Be glorified in your word as it's applied to us, that we would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've come now to the end of another chapter in Romans. I thought about extending this to two weeks, but we're going to keep it with just this one sermon. There's, there's an awful lot here that we could look at. Topically speaking, in fact, the last two times I've preached in Romans 13, we've, we've preached one sermon on love, which is maybe one of the more meaty topics you could ever touch on in Scripture, loving your neighbor as yourself. There's so much to say about that. And now we come to what I am calling in succession here, and I think Perhaps in the mind of Paul, this is what he's thinking as he's writing this. Another motivation in the Christian life. Now, Paul is, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes. But that great first motivation, in fact, it's an emotion as well. Emotions aren't evil if they're rightly informed, are they? It's an emotion. It's also a motivation. That is love. It ought to motivate the, our conduct, especially in this context, in regards to our neighbors, Paul says it is the fulfilling of the law, and I argue that this means a second table of the law, which has to do with how we carry out love towards our neighbor. We're not just in the dark about what love means, and today we'll see that again. Love can be defined uh, accurately and truthfully in Scripture, and indeed it is defined for us. It's not just subjective. Today, love for our neighbor will take on another very clear distinction and definition. This uh, comes, what we'll learn today, on the heels of love, but it is connected with love. What we'll learn today regarding the return of Christ and the motivation that that should give us to live godly lives, holy lives, is still in relationship to love. You are not prepared for Christ's return if you're not living in love towards your neighbor. And so let's not disconnect the two, but let's say at the beginning that they're connected, and yet this is another important motivation 
for how we live in this life. And this will, I believe, motivate us in turn so that we will love our neighbor. You know, one of the problems and one of the impediments of loving our neighbor is that we get so consumed with ourselves in the here and now, our needs, our wants, the things that we strive for, our goals, our ambitions. And those may not all be wrong, but when they're disordered, loving our neighbor becomes hard, sometimes impossible. Regarding what the apostle has to say here, it's important for us to realize that there is much fulfillment that we enjoy already when we come to the New Testament as, as believers in this covenant that we are in, the New Covenant, we can look back at so much fulfillment. In fact, far more fulfillment than was in the, New, in the Old Testament. But since God has been giving promises, God has always been, in a sense, in at least part, in part, fulfilling them. Noah was promised that he would be saved and his family build an ark, and God fulfilled that promise. He was saved in that ark. God promised to make of Abraham, through the promised seed, a, pro a father of innumerable people, an innumerable nation. And indeed, that was partially fulfilled in Israel. And yet we come to the New Testament, we see that there is more fulfillment in these things. It was promised to Moses and to Israel, that there would be a prophet that would come after Moses, like him, but greater. Christ is that fulfillment of that prophet. There would be a king like, like unto David, in the lineage of David, that would sit on the throne of David forever. And Christ is the fulfillment of that kingship. And all the nations of the earth were promised to be blessed through Abraham. And that blessing comes through the seed of Abraham, which we learn in Galatians, is singular. And that regards Jesus Christ. And so we look back in Galatians chapter 4 tells us that in the fullness of time, that is that full cup, that full measure of God's purposes and redemption, God sent his son. And so we look back at the, at the incarnation of Christ. We look back at the redemption that he won for us at the cross and the empty tomb. And we say, it is accomplished. Our salvation is accomplished. God has fulfilled his promises. And yet we are still left with a great and precious promise that is yet future and that is the return of Christ there's another way we could talk about that the return of Christ and that is the first point our future salvation verse 11 he says besides this besides the necessity of loving our neighbor besides that as a motivation for how we ought to live godly in this world I think he he adds this to it, in connection to it. You know the time. Kairos is the word there. We'll talk a little bit about that. That hour has come. There's a, a sense where the hour has come. It's fulfillment, and yet it's future for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. There's four references of time here. Did you catch those? The time, the hour has come, is nearer. All of those regard time here. And what they, demean, what they mean doesn't necessarily depend on the Greek word. The Greek words can be used to describe several different things. But the context very clearly narrows down 
what the apostle has to say in regards to time. Time here probably means, the word kairos probably means an appointed time. An hour probably means something that is soon to be fulfilled, something at hand, something that's coming. It's sure to come, but it's future, but it's coming. It's close. And yet he says it has come. So there's something that in light of that future scenario that is still future and yet close, something is already here. Something for us is already present because, and here's this very important phrase, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And this means that Paul is not here speaking about what is merely already taken place in our salvation. Christ has come, the gospel, the promise of God. In chapter 1, we saw the, how, how Paul opens up this chapter is in reference to the revelation that God gave from the prophets to David about this seed of David who would come, the gospel, which would be in his son fulfilled. The message of the gospel, which is God's, concerns Jesus Christ. And that's in fulfillment. The whole of Romans chapters 1 through 11 has to do with the gospel and all of its benefits that are ours now already. There are some indications there that are future blessings, of course. Eternal life is part of that gospel blessing. But here we see this phrase, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And in fact, salvation in the New Testament is spoken of in three tenses of time. It's spoken of in the past tense, Ephesians chapter 2. We love that text. We, we marvel at the grace of God. But in twice, in verse 5 and verse 8, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together by grace in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then in verse 8, you have been saved. That's past tense. Our salvation is complete in Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling. It's past, it's done, it's accomplished, it's finished as Christ said for those who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of the works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy by washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we are currently, if we are in Christ by faith, we are saved. Rejoice in your salvation that is finished in Christ. But so as, and I believe this is essential for how we believe and how we understand our salvation, it is begun and God is still at work in us. If he wasn't, we would be without hope. And so our salvation is present. It's not merely past. We don't just look back at our conversion. Some of you don't maybe know exactly the time of your conversion. But we don't merely look back at that and say, I'm saved because of that. We also look like at texts like 1 Corinthians 1.18. Though the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, to us who are being saved, and that's the tense of the verb, God is saving us now. He is keeping us by his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. What Christ has won for us is a salvation that is continuing. God is holding us in his hand. He is persevering us, if you will, 
even as we persevere in faith. Because it is the power of God, he said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, that saves us. 2 Corinthians 2.15 again puts it in this tense. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Those who are being saved are the saints of God. Those who are saved are being saved by God. And yet also, salvation is also future. Mark 13, 13. Our Lord promised that all, you, will all, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now here's the encouragement. We're saved in Christ past tense. He's saving us. He is the one enabling that perseverance. But there is a future salvation here. We'll be saved. Romans 10.9, we already have touched on that in our preaching. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can see this, the scriptures speak about them then, salvation, in three senses, three tenses. And, and here it is. In each of these definitions, final salvation is expected. And in fact, it's certain. If, God, if we are saved, then we are not going to be unsaved. And what demonstrates that in the text here we've just seen is that God is continually making sure we are being saved. And we will be saved. But there is here, I want us to understand just this, there is a future sense of our salvation. And that's what Paul is is urging us to recognize. There is a future salvation that awaits us. This future event that Paul is describing brings about what is called the culmination or the consummation of the work of grace that God has wrought in our heart, that he begun in us. He will complete it, Philippians 1. The author is going to finish his work in us. Beloved, the references to time here, hour, etc., in these verses regards, I believe, the time when our salvation is consummated at the time of Christ's return. In fact, this is really, I believe, when we look in depth at the words, hour, day, time, they can all be sorted out in reference in the New Testament to the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Our blessed hope, it's called. And so this is bound up together. The return of Christ and our future salvation are bound up together. Now this doesn't mean the the first coming of Christ wasn't that great advent in human history. It was. It was the fulfilling of everything. It was the means whereby we have hope that in Christ's coming, Eternity begins. There is no more. This, is, this last age is the age that will give way to eternity. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more suffering. We know that everything that God has done has already made it certain that in Christ's return, we will be caught up together with the Lord and those whom have rejected the gospel will be judged. But here is the emphasis from the apostle for us. Our salvation is future, and we ought to live a certain way in light of that. This consummation, the return of our Lord, is at hand. The the term hour, I think, is really significant for us. 
a lot of flack gets thrown at the, the apostles because they were teaching that the time of Christ's return is at hand. It's near. And, and Peter even takes that up and he says, there will be scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues. Right? And we hear this today. We've, the church has always had to defend the truth of the coming of Christ. Just realize this. The very first promise, I don't know where I'm at in my notes now, but the very first promise that we have in Scripture concerning salvation is in Genesis 3.15. That was a long time before Christ came. And then Peter kind of simplifies everything for God's people when he says, remember that God is not slack concerning his promises. A thousand years to God is like a day. He will fulfill his promise. Christ will return. But as believers, it should be something that we expect, that we delight in, that we look forward to. And this coheres with the faith that we have in Jesus. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you not desire to be with him? Colossians says our home is in heaven. We are seated there now as part of the assurance of our salvation. Where Christ is seated, chapter 3, that is our home. Philippians chapter 3. You know, where your home is, that's where your heart is. So many of the unbelief, so many of the Christians throwing off this day, there's a hashtag of evangelicals throwing off their faith is, is, is not a detriment to the Christian faith. It's a detriment to their own salvation, to their own souls. They don't have a future hope. They don't have the encouragement of the blessed appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying something to us here that the hour of our salvation coincides with Christ's return, and that should mean something for the way that we live in this life. So what does he, what does he go through? How does he define the, this motivation of our future salvation? How does it motivate us for life now? It motivates us in many ways, but Paul narrows this out here, and then he broadens it out in verse 14. Secondly, the main point, second main point is living in light of our future salvation. Verses 12 through 14, I'll read those. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, for those of us who believed, who must wake from sleep, he says in verse 11, be prepared for Christ's return to be living in such a way that you're prepared for it. We are now told that the night is far gone. And the analogy is, is very clear, isn't it? The, ana the analogy is that night is that season where the works of darkness are carried out. And that's, that time is, is fading away. And we know the dawn is coming. Peter says at the end when Christ returns, there will be a new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. 
the day where evil, this day of, this age of evil, if you go back to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this day and age of evil, rebellion against God, is temporal. And it will give way to righteousness. And so, the urgency here, in light of that, we're not asleep. We know the dawn is coming. Live according to that knowledge. Live according to that salvation. What does salvation mean here? It is a time when sin will cease. You know, I can't remember who said it. I believe it was Charles Ryle. Uh, not Charles. Uh, it was J.C. Ryle. I believe he said, those Christians who do not desire holiness now will despise heaven and are not fit for it. And it makes a good point, doesn't it? You don't care about holiness now. That's what heaven will be. You don't care about delighting in the Lord and doing his will. What did Jesus say in, his, in, in teaching us to pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That will be the day when the heavens are made new, when the earths are made new. All that will be done in his creation will be according to his will. Do you want that now? Do you want to do his will? And that's the motivation here. Those of us who have faith, we realize our salvation is our desire. The coming of the Lord, the seeing him, the being like him, the worshiping him in righteousness, in knowledge that as we are known, so then can you imagine that day when we worship him with the right mind of worship? The, the glorified mind of worship. Now, we come to him and we're so imperfect, imperfect in a sense still. Not in our salvation, but in our own sanctification. One day that will end. And so he says here, let us walk properly in, as in the daytime. As if it were that day of our salvation, that's how we ought to be walking now. Walking is in light of conduct, the way we ought to conduct ourselves. Now, it's common in Paul's writing to describe evil works as darkness. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Philippians 1.27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ means that there is a value placed on, on you and your salvation, the way you carry it out. You ought not to be what you're not. We saw that in chapter 12, verses 2, right? And what we are not is children of darkness anymore. We're children of light. And what we're saved for is not darkness. That's another way that the scripture talks about darkness, is judgment. We are not saved for that end. So what are we doing conducting ourselves in that way, as if we were meant for that end, judgment. The way that we ought to walk ought to show the work of grace of God in our hearts and the direction that he has put us on, the path, the narrow path, which leads to salvation. 
And so he names some sins here. This is not a complete list of sins here by any means. But I think there's something of value to looking at them. These were probably sins that beset this time period, the church in this time period, the culture in this time period. There are times when the church needs to speak about particular sins that are on the tip of everyone's tongue and are being promoted and accepted and and celebrated in the culture. There are some times when certain sins need to be addressed more profoundly and more directly. And I think that's why Paul, he can't talk about every sin, but he narrows some things down here. He says, not in orgies, this is not how we ought to walk, in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousies. This is a brief list, but it has a very interesting order, and this is not uncommon for Paul. It seems as if in each one of these phrases, Paul leads the cart before the horse, if you will. Notice there are orgies. Now, orgies doesn't necessarily mean that splattering, that that grotesque sexual gathering. It could mean that in that day of Rome, but it probably means more like a party that's just, you're just out of control. Everyone's drunk, everyone's arrogant, everyone's proud, no one is loving their neighbor at all. They're all out of their minds, they've gone there to be that way, in fact. That's the goal, is to, to gather and be, the, the old word was revelings, and, and be none of them being sober-minded or concerned with living righteously. But drunkenness usually comes before. <laughs> it's, it's a means to that end of the revelings, Right? And, and again with the second phrase, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Sensuality usually comes prior to the sexual exploits that he's speaking about here. And that's, that's the sin he's concerned with. But the previous sin that leads to it is the sensuality. And we're so full of that today. And then he says quarreling and jealousy. And jealousy leads to that. Jealousy and envy leads to war, James says. And so you see how Paul is sort of teaching that there is a a sin, a fruit of even sin that abounds in the society that Christians take part in, and there are things that lead to even more grotesque sins. You You could maybe define this as private sins and public sins. You can be drunk on your own, right? But when you gather together and you're drunk, now you're together and you're reveling, right? You can be sensual on your own, but that leads to sensuality. You see how in all of these things, I think there is a sense where love creeps in, right? That definition of love. You don't love your neighbor when you sin, even in private. It will lead to public sins. That's something that we need to hear. For the last, I don't know, 15 years, I've been hearing what we do in the privacy of our own bedroom is our own business. And God says, between a married man and woman, that's a good thing. But who you are doesn't change when you come out of that room. In fact, recently, 
that has been admitted by the same folks that have said, let us do what we want to do in our bedroom. Let's not talk about it as sin because it's just two consenting adults doing what they want. Lately, I've been hearing a lot more of what I do in my bedroom with whoever I want to be with and whoever wants to be with me is who I am. That's what defines me. Private sin will lead to public sins, and that is not love to your neighbor. And it, ha- it ought to teach us now, in light of our future salvation, that when we walk, even by ourselves, we need to walk with the motivation of love and with the realization that Christ is coming again. And we will experience that full salvation, and so let's live like we will be saved in the future now. Now, this is also important in this sense. We cannot allow people to infiltrate the church. This will happen outside the church. There's a sense where unless God brings, by his mercy and grace, a, a great awakening, another reformation, a great work of saving grace into society, we will not be able to stop this snowball of immorality in the broader culture. What concerns me primarily is that so many Christians are falling prey to the ideas and the ideals of the sinful world and sinful philosophies and sinful ideologies. And so many people are giving way to identify love as being whatever we decide it's going to be. But notice here, in the context of love, he's already says that love agrees with the law of God, fulfills it, but here we cannot define love here as doing whatever you want sexually speaking, taking part in any kind of revelings or, or as he says at the ESV, says here orgies or violence or jealousies. There is a biblical and true way to define love. And when you step out of those lines and contradict it, that's when you know it is not love. So let's be inspired and taught by the text. Let's bow our knee to God's word. In contrast to those earthly, temporal, rebellious sins against God that he's named, we are to, in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Alternatively, we make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul said in verse 12, So then let us cast off the works of darkness, casting off, and now he says, put on the armor of light. Now he tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's some urgency here, isn't it? He doesn't say just put off uh, the, the works of darkness and then put on some nice, cozy, linen comfortable clothes that you can get along with in the life. He says, put on armament. I think that means that living this way, holy, godly lives, is not going to be easy. I think that's what we should take away at least from that. Putting on armor means that you are engaged in battle. Any of you wake up this morning thinking, 
my salvation is a matter of warfare. You know, one of the things I see going on in the Olympics right now, and you're going to, probably some of you will hate me, and it, as somebody who's competitive, I just find it a little bit, uh, it, there is sort of in our society right now this, this sense that we can all just be the same. And I think there are reasons to say that's good. In Christ, we are all one. There is a sense, too, where we need to recognize we are in a, a battle. Not merely a competition of who's best, but a battle for souls, for eternity. And Paul says to us, you better be serious, so serious, that when you think about living your life in light of the coming of Christ, you put on armor. You put on armor to make sure that you are one of those who persevere. And here is this, here is this balance between the grace of God who is promised in every sense to save us and what he calls us to be in that salvation. Diligent. Sober. Putting on the armor of God. We are wrestling. Do you not feel that you are wrestling in this age? If you're not wrestling, you are on your way to being lost. Let me just say, if you don't have a sense of the urgency of resisting sin, you will give in to it. And God help us. God help you. God help me. If we ever take sin lightly, tonight... I'm going to preach on Psalm 38, where David, King David, does not take sin lightly. And he's in torment of soul because of his sin. In fear of God, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You might say, oh, but I want to be accepted, and I feel more accepted the more I, I attach myself to maybe both Christianity and the way the world thinks, and maybe can't we just be both, and maybe I'm understanding Scripture wrong? What does sin mean in your conscience? What does it mean to you? He doesn't specify what he means about armor here, but you can go to Ephesians chapter 6 and see what armor means there. It's a spiritual armament. It's not physical weaponry. But I think when we come to verse 14 and he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the essence of it all. Your desire for Christ, your faith in him, your love for him will inform how you Fulfill the second great commandment in loving your neighbor. It will fulfill your resistance to sin. That's the great armament. That's the great encouragement of the persevering of faith is that Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is within you so that your mind will be conformed to the Spirit. Your walk will be conformed to the Spirit. The encouragement that you will fail is encouragement when we know that God in you will not. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's why the author of Hebrews says to look on to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Never stop that. 
This is not about introspection, merely. When we do that, we get off track. This is about looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In fact, that's who we're looking for, isn't it? So it makes sense, doesn't it? In the way that we pattern our life of faith, we are looking to Him, we're putting Him on, because we're looking for Him. He's the means of our salvation, past, present, and future. So put Him on every day. It's not like we're being saved every day when we say, okay, come into my heart every day. That's not what I mean. It means you know you desperately need Him today. Every day. Help me to be prepared. Satan is as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. With you, Christ, it won't be me. I know that. So how do we apply all of these things? I'm going to talk about that last phrase and make no provision for the flesh next week a little bit as we go into chapter 14. How do you think about the return of Christ? And I don't mean looking around us necessarily and seeing all the events of time unfold. When you think about the return of Christ, what is the condition of your spirit? When you think about seeing Christ, do you long for that day when he returns? When it's good, when, when your days are going good and smooth and clean, do you stop to say, it's not good enough? <laughs> I want Christ. When you're distracted by suffering and trials, do you think, oh, oh I, if I could just feel better, then everything would be better? No, do you think, Christ, come. Christian faith, by definition, trusts Christ, depends on Christ, leans on Christ, loves Christ, rejoices in Christ, longs for Christ. And so it longs for the freedom, finally, from sin. It longs to be like Christ, the promise of Romans chapter 8, the promise of why God saved us. Why in eternity He chose us in the Beloved is so that we would be glorified. That we would be, that He would be the firstborn of many brethren. So we should long for that for which we are in union with Christ now. We are already in union with Christ now. But there is a day when our faith will become sight and we will be like Christ, free from sin, free to behold God without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And because of that, we ought to be motivated to holiness now. If you don't long to see Jesus, you should ask yourself, why? Are you content in this world? Are you intent so much on your goals and that they take most of your thought and energy? Do you care if Christ comes back and finds you ready for his return? Do you think that he won't return? That's the 
opposite of faith, isn't it? Jesus talked about those who should have been ready but weren't. Matthew 24, 48 through 51. The wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats, eats and drinks with drunkards. It sounds a lot like what Paul just described there. And the master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him. And at the hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing and teeth. And this is the opposite. And let it not be sugarcoated. We don't need to sugarcoat the justice of God. It ought to drive us to his gracious and saving arms to know that he is righteous and will judge righteously those who offend him. That we, as the Puritans would say, as worms would offend the living God and expect that we would not be judged in accordance with our offense. It just shows that the hubris of our condition, the malady of our pride is so great that we would think that God would not be in the right to judge us vigorously for our wickedness and our offense against him. And here it is, Jesus speaks about someone who should know better. We know better. Flee from the wrath that is to come. And the opposite of that fleeing, the direction of our fleeing is to the Lord. It's to Him. And to Him means everything. Not just the good life now. It's a better life now. It's a lesser yoke now. It is eternal life that we are saved unto, though. It's salvation. And I pray this is true of you. As Paul said in Philippians 3.20 and 21, that your citizenship is in heaven, and from it that you await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He died and was buried, and he rose again, and he ascended, and he will come back, be certain, who will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Rejoice in that. His power to save. And I've said it already, your future salvation should motivate our sanctification now. The excitement and joy of the prospect of being like Christ should induce in us now a passion for holiness and godliness. A singleness of mind to hope in the Lord. To hope in the Lord and to know that hope cannot be dissuaded, dissuaded and can only be realized in Christ himself, in this life and the life to come. And though the ungodly will mock and scorn our faith that he will return, do not be deceived. He will, and let that be your blessed hope, as it's called. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. We were saved to have a future. This life is not all there is for the believer. And all God's people said, Amen. And that is confirmed and it is made absolutely sure because Jesus rose from the dead, having accomplished your redemption 
And he promised that when he comes, he will have prepared a place for you so that he will bring you to himself. So that where he is, you will be also. And everyone who is in Christ rejoices in the return of the bridegroom. His church, his bride, loves the bridegroom. Let's pray that we remember him in his return so that we will be like him. Now, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. In a day and age where we are all about the here and now, we are all about the comforts of life as we can get them now, all about keeping ourselves safe against any kind of conflict and turmoil, let us put on armor. We are not safe as long as we feel safe in this world apart from you. I pray that we would feel safe in the arms by faith in you, in your arms, knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing temporary will come between you and the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, and us. So help us to seek him and to seek his return. And as we're seeking him, help us to be like him until the day that we see him and we will be like him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.